Welcome, everyone. In uh, early Buddhism, which is part of this, this tradition here, one of the, the central teachings is around this confusing term, not self. And I, I think a way to, uh, hopefully this evening we'll get a, uh, a gateway into it. And one way of understanding this teaching is to see how our minds create a sense of ourselves or a sense of a self that can sometimes be really confining or I feel trapped by or entangled in. And there's one flavor that I want to explore uh, together with you tonight, and that's this, um, the, the Pali word, Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism. The Pali word is mana, and it's usually translated as conceit. The thing is, is the word conceit can be kind of uh, misleading because it's not just, often, you know, when I heard the word conceit, I, I think of that feeling of being puffed up better than other people. You know what I'm talking about? But in Buddhist psychology, conceit means not only the sense of I am better than, it's also when I feel less than other people or when I feel equal to them. So when I create a sense of self of, oh, I'm better than someone, or if I create a sense of self of, oh, I'm less than others, or even if I'm equal to, but it says, oh, there's a sense of confinement there. There's a kind of entanglement that doesn't allow me to live freely. And maybe that's a place to begin. You know, what kind of freedom would come if I'm not lost in these comparing thoughts? That's another word for this is the mind, that can, the comparing mind. And what comes to mind is Ian Forrester's novel. I think it's Howard End and the, epi the epigraph for that novel is only connect. And when I reflect on when I'm getting, my mind's getting lost in, oh, I'm better than other people, or I'm less than other people, or even when I'm equal to, I'm not connecting. I'm lost in my story about me. I'm entangled in it. So what I'd like to do tonight is just to go through these different qualities of um, one better than, less than, and equal to, and look at how it kind of manifests individually in our own lives, but also to notice how there are systemic or collective dimensions to this comparing mind that I feel like I've just been given in many ways. So let's, let's look at some examples. The feeling of being better than. Here are the examples that came to mind. I vote the right way. I'm not one of those people who voted for him or for her or them. <laughs> you ever have that feeling? <laughs> so I'm not the only one. Where, where I feel better than because of my political views. Or I don't smoke. Right? And what comes with that is that I'm better than people who smoke. I don't eat meat, right? and there's, there can be an implication where I take that, I create a self where I'm better than people who eat meat. I shop at Savers. <laughs> right? Even with that statement, there can be a little bit like shopping at other places is just not correct. 
it can be all around all kinds of things. And we'll come back to these in, in, in these other manifestations. Sometimes, you know, or I don't get on Facebook or I'm not on Snapchat or Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter. <laughs> right? And what's, what's implied with that? I'm better than. Not like those others who are destroying their minds with social media. <laughs> I remember one time, this is a few years ago because things have changed for me. I was on a plane and the woman next to me, I think I was on my phone, pulled out a flip phone and I had a flip phone at, this, at, this, at, um, at that time. And we were like, wow, we have flip phones. And there was this feeling of like feeling better than everyone else who had destroyed their minds with smartphones, you know? <laughs> yeah. It really, I could feel the puffing up. I have a smartphone now, so I, I, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a little more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but have you noticed how we do this around all kinds of things? And it can be separating where I, I um, hold stake to this or I create a self out of these things. So I'm, I'm creating a self that is created around being better than other people. And I want to point out the nuance to this because our minds they have a way of um, discerning, and discernment's really important to compare and contrast and discern what's skillful is part of the spiritual path. Like, for example, not eating meat, I think, can be a wonderful way of expressing one's ethical integrity. But that's different than when I'm using it to see myself as better than. It's so different. Not smoking can be a really great way to take care of the body. But it's different when I'm holding it against others or I see that I'm somehow better than and that people who smoke are somehow morally flawed in some kind of way. And hopefully you hear within this the, the, when I start to claim some kind of space, how it can be hurtful to others. You know, I, I can get so self-righteous about these places. So the the problem isn't in the discerning or picking what's skillful. It's the next step of creating a self around it that's better than. And then the feeling of less than on this individual level. And maybe you've experienced this. You know, when someone's talking to you and they're sharing about something and, and you start to get this feeling that, that you feel like you should know know about what they're talking about, but you don't. And then there's a feeling, I know I can feel it's almost a shrinking because I don't really know some of the terms they're using or I don't know the concepts or the, the, the current events that they're talking about. And there's almost like an expectation that I should know. And then all of a sudden there's this feeling of, oh, I'm less than because I don't know. Ever have that feeling? Right? And there it is. It can be, and a lot of times it's not even a thought, but it's, I, I, I can feel it in some kind of way. Or it could be around all the things that I just mentioned. You smoke or you eat meat or you use Facebook or Twitter. You vo vote a different way than your friends. You don't shop at Savers. <laughs> and then you're in a context where that's the value and there can be a shrinking. Or in a group, you feel like the one who isn't very attractive or you feel like the older one in a group and you feel less than as a result, or you feel like the younger one in a group and you feel less than. 
or there can be a feeling of less than around body shape or skin color or the ability of our bodies or intelligence. Hopefully you're starting to hear some of these systemic or collective dimensions of conceit or comparing mind. Yet the same thing's happening. I create a self around it and then I feel like I'm less than, I'm inferior, I'm no good. You know, on these collective dimensions, it can be kind of this internalized oppression. And I think here, the, the suffering can be even more palpable. Do you know that feeling and how it can feel so contracting? And how it can be difficult to connect? It can almost sometimes when I have that feeling, it's almost an embarrassment to connect. I want to hide away from that. That too is conceit. It's comparing mine. I'm creating a self that's separating me. Equal to, this is the one that's a little more subtle. Subtle. You know, even when I create a self that's equal to others, there can be a sense of separation. Not wanting to be overdressed or underdressed for the party. <laughs> wanting to fit in in some way. You don't want to be ahead of others because then it can feel uncomfortable because it can feel so separating. But you don't want to be, be behind the pack either. Right in the middle. And sometimes there can be a sense of when I'm in the middle, I don't have to be seen. I can kind of blend in some way. Not wanting to stand out. Or someone shares a particular experience and there can be the sense of really wanting to write, really, really wanting to be on the same page as them. <coughs> And sometimes what underlies this is we're all the same. And it's because sometimes for our minds, the feeling of sameness can feel comforting and reassuring. But also it can be harmful, harmful to ourselves and others. You know, and we'll, we'll get around this. I mean, in, in some ways on the collective dimension, which we'll get to, this is sometimes the pain of assimilation for people who come into this country and for... So here's the individual dimension of these, and now the, the collective dimension. The better than. And you'll hear, you know, when I give these, it's really, they're going to be mixed, the, the sense of better than and less than. I think it's important to go over this because I notice my mind has inherited this. A colleague of mine, I, I so appreciate she, what she brings in around, conceit around this collective dimension is... Uh, what, what was called the doctrine of discovery, which was a, um, something that was put out by the Pope in the late 15th century. And it was this papal degree that, that, uh, that gave justification for Christian European explorers to kind of claim the land and waterways ways that they had come to as long as the peoples there were not Christian. So you could come and take land away or even commit genocide or other acts of violence because it was decreed by the Pope. And it was based upon who was better than and less than. If you were a Christian, and then it also came down to being white, then you were better than. And so it, was, it, was, uh, it made it easy to dehumanize others as a result. 
And this, of, of course, was some of the, the momentum behind colonization, the colonization that, you've, that, we've, you know, that we've seen in the Americas here in Africa and elsewhere. And it didn't just stop there. Even up into the, the 19th century in the, you know, 1823, there was a su Supreme Court decision that was based on the doctrine of dis discovery, that it was okay to claim these lands that were native lands based on that. And it partially fueled the particular kind of slavery that we had here in the U.S. since it was so intertwined with colonization. This is this, the systems put in, being put in place of who is better than and who is less than. And it, it would be so cool if it stopped in the 19th century. That'd be great. It's just not the case. I mean, it's still, there's still a system of that. So even with uh, personal injury and wrong, wrongful death lawsuits that are still carried out today, much of the, dis, um, the determination of the payout is still uh, determined on lines of race and gender. So for example, and this, this impacts uh, often uh, like personal injury lawsuits around uh, kids. So if you have a white boy who suffers from lead poisoning and there's gonna be a personal injury payout compared to a black girl the white boy is going to have a much higher payout than the black girl. So this is still the, the you know, forensic e economists to, to this day still use estimates like this. Like, so this is in the system, which means that a, that a white body, a white male body, by the law is deemed more valuable than a, a black body, especially a black body of a woman. So this is going on. This is, this is a system that we're in. Or, especially in this part of the country, I think it's so important to know, for example, a, a population that can be so invisible as, as Native American women, who it's a population known to experience some of the nation's highest rates of murder, sexual violence, and domestic abuse. And most of the, the violence happens from, on Native American women from non-white or non-Native American people, which is radically different than um, all other uh, racial, uh, racial women from racial groups. And it's something that has had a lot of invisibility around it. It's not like you see a lot of cases of this in the news. And that's also a factor because there's so little news that comes from all of the tribal lands in this country. So again, this is a, this is a dynamic that's still happening on a systemic level. Who's valuable? Who gets seen in terms of these things? Who gets supported and who doesn't? And I think it's even closer than, than that systemically. A number of years ago, many of you know, there was a, a few studies that came out around um, how uh, the dynamics on Airbnb, showing that on Airbnb, studies that, that people um, who appeared white or had white-sounding names compared to black-sounding names, you had a higher rate of getting a, getting a room in somebody's house. 
And if you were, uh, for example, I think another study, if you were a black host, you on average was, were earning much less for the room that you were renting out than uh, white counterparts. So I think a lot of it was black-white uh, um, research. And, and I think the cool thing is, is it's not like uh, Airbnb was denying this or Airbnb was somehow trying to make this happen. It was just the way that the platform was set up is you could see people's faces and you can see their names. And then, of course, when you think of Airbnb, there are millions of people using it. So they had this huge database to clearly see that this, this is what the numbers were showing. I think they have, there's a lot of different things that you can do with Airbnb to help They're really working on it. So it's not like this company had that intention. So I want to be clear about it. But what it points out is that, that how implicit bias still works in this country. And their sense was, is it's not like, not like people were intentionally trying to be racist. It's just that these things can be so ingrained because of the history. And I point this out to show that this sense of conceit, it happens on an individual level, but it's like the collective moves through my mind and my body. You know, as Krishnamurti said, my mind is society. It just plays out in this way, a lot of times with these subtle senses of bias. And I think that's the, the wonderful thing about this practice is that we can begin to uh, ameliorate these dynamics with, with the practice of mindfulness, to begin to notice how the mind works and what it's doing. And then the equal to, I think there could be you know, a few different examples of this. I think the, the, the quote that I think captures the equal to conceit that can be harmful is captured by this quote where someone says, some people are born on third base and go through life thinking they hit a triple. Right? The, you know, the, the sense that there can be a sense that this is truly a meritocracy, that we actually all start right there at the plate, and then we go to first, to second, and third, but it doesn't work that way. You know, the, there's these imbalances, you know, in terms of how things happen around race or gender, um, socioeconomic um, dynamics as well. So there can be this notion of equal to systemically, which can lead us astray. So I think this too is an important part of the practice that, that we find ourselves thrown into a context that is already determined who is better than or less than. So it could be around ability or our attractiveness. The list goes on of what we get sold, you could say. And, and I want to point out how subtle this can be. It doesn't have to be explicit. If I grow up walking down the street holding my mom's hand, and each time we, cro we, um, we pass a black man and she tightly squeezes my hand but doesn't say anything, something's being conveyed to my physiology that I might not even be consciously aware of, but I'm getting this, this message each time I'm coming across certain people that look a certain way. 
Of course, this is just one example. You know, we could fit in all different kinds of stereotypes or, or ways that of this better than or less than. So how to become free of this? How to allow the heart to move beyond such confinement? What I love about this practice of mindfulness is it's beginning to see how this mind works. And around this is just noticing how the mind can judge. How it can judge others, how it can judge myself. And a lot of times it's a feeling. As I said, when I feel less than, I feel it. It feels like a, a contracting or a hiding. You know what I'm talking about? When it's like that time where somebody's talking about something, you don't know what they're talking about. There can be a shrinking. Oh, there it is. Or the feeling of being better than, the self-righteousness, feeling that. On the collective level, just seeing another body or hearing an accent, noticing how the mind is responding to that. Or interesting, judging. Oh, that's what the mind does. Yeah, makes sense. This mind is society. Of course it does that. So I'm not giving myself a hard time about it. I'm just seeing it. And this is really important is it's, I'm not trying to get rid of it. I'm trying to see it. And this difference is really important. This is why I love the title of this book, The Seeing That Frees. Because often if it's something that I don't want to see, then, then what happens are these like biases. I'm just trying to push to the side and I'm just trying to pretend that I'm always a really good person. And what I found is that that's been really dangerous because I don't step back to really notice what the mind's doing. And then it just kind of goes undercover and then it's still playing out. So it's seeing it and I, w without judgment. It, was what the, it came by this honestly. <laughs> seeing it can be so freeing. Just that. So many dimensions to it. Or I was leading a men's retreat started on Sunday, and so the, the thing that comes to mind is also, as a man, sometimes looking weaker or weak and noticing, oh, wow, the, the pressures to be a certain way. And if there's a feeling of being seen as weak, the less than, or, not, or being seen as not as weak, maybe as other men or something like that, there can be a sense of better than. That's just, that's just the way I've been taught to perform masculinity. And it just takes the scene of it. That's what's so important. What might it look like to show up without being hooked by these narratives, these, this conceit of better than or less than or equal to, this comparing mind? And I want to share with you a quote by... Mm, in the realm of philosophy and also psychotherapy, uh, a man by the name of Eugene Genlin. And this passage I'm going to share with you is advice to psychotherapists, yet I find it telling for just our lives in general. I think it can be um, expanded from there, but, you, but you'll see that it is kind of in a specific context, but I think it's applicable to show that there is a different way of being in the world. So he says, I want to start with the most important thing I have to say. 
The essence of working with another person is to be present as a living being. And that is lucky because if we had to be smart or good or mature or wise, then we would probably be in trouble. But what matters is not that. What matters is to be a human being with another human being, to recognize the other person as another being in there. So when I sit down with someone, I take my troubles and feelings and I put them over here on one side, close, because I might need them. Then I'm just here with my eyes and there is this other being. If they happen to look into my eyes, they will see that I am just a shaky being. I have to tolerate that. They may not look, but if they do, they will see that. They will see the slightly shy, slightly withdrawing, insecure existence that I am. I've learned, learned that that is okay. I don't need to be emotionally secure and firmly present. I just need to be present. There are no qualifications for the kind of person I must be. Doesn't that feel freeing, that statement, that there are no qualifications for the kind of person I must be? Because with the sense of comparing mind, I'm comparing because I feel like there are these qualifications that I'm already always entangled with. As he says, you know, I have to be smart or good or mature or wise in this way that actually creates a confinement. And it doesn't mean that I stop trying to cultivate wisdom or goodness. I just stop creating a self that's confined or entangled with those, where I'm beating myself up with them. I think this, this ties into another realm, a little bit aside from mindfulness, that I think can be very helpful for stepping out of the comparing mind. And this comes from Kristen Neff. I don't know if anybody's read Kristen Neff. She's written a lot about self-compassion. And in some of her work, she makes a distinction between self-appreciation and self-esteem. And it's an interesting distinction. With self-appreciation, I'm just appreciating, for example, one way of doing it, just the good things I do every day the wholesome things, whether it be like smile at the cashier or say hello or pick up a piece of trash or do the dishes. Just a sense of self-appreciation just for what's going on. And she, when she looks at the contract, she, and she's looking at self-esteem in a very particular way, I want to acknowledge that, that with self-esteem, a lot of times there can be a kind of comparing oneself with ourselves. Am I doing better? Am I now like have high esteem for myself? or low esteem, and there can still be a sense of judging oneself, seeing, making sure that I make the mark in some kind of way. It's a creating of a self. Or the other one is just this heart quality of appreciation. 
And also what comes with self-appreciation is when there's difficulty, then there's a softening of the heart. Other than sometimes self-esteem, at least in, in kind of in her perspective, can be a, a, a thing that we have to overcome because it can ding our self-esteem if we don't overcome those in some way. So she really tries to emphasize an opening of the heart towards ourselves rather than creating some fixed sense of self. Okay, so let's uh, just take a minute to stand up and stretch and move around and then we'll begin to sit together. And we'll just do this simple practice of noticing, noticing what the mind does, feeling into the breath and the body. Noticing when there isn't a sense of being contracted or all puffed up, but just maybe a quality of presence at times. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.